But let me invite you to turn in your Bibles. I bet you can't imagine where we're going. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And uh, I've entitled this sermon, The Familiarity Vaccine. The Familiarity Vaccine. Um, we were talking about it this morning a little bit as Sam is getting ready to, Lord willing, enter the United States Air Force. And they have recently, well, not terribly recently, but they have um, updated their, the military has updated their stance on the COVID shot. So they do not have to take that COVID shot in the military right now unless they're going to a country that requires it. So there's always the chance, but it's nice to have that option. Um, and that was a big debate. And I, I'm not here to get into that vaccine debate, but what's the purpose of a vaccine? Huh? To prevent you from getting the disease, but how does it work? It gives you just a little bit of the disease, not a lot. It gives you just a touch of that disease in your system. And then what does your body do? It fights it. Your body raises up antibodies against it. And, um, and, and then when the disease comes into your system, you've already got antibodies present to make that work so that you don't get that disease. Now, they don't always work the way they're intended. And boy, have we seen that in this latest round of vaccines. However, the idea is you get a little bit of it so that you don't get a lot of it, right? You get a little bit of something so that you're protected against the bigger piece of that something. Does that make sense? So that's what a vaccine is for. Now, and and I, I, I titled this the familiarity vaccine, and you'll understand why here in just a moment. Uh, because Mark's fast adventure immediately turns into a horror story <laughs> in chapter 6. It's really the most terrifying account in all of Mark's gospel. It's even, it's even more scary than the cross, which is coming. And the reason is because Jesus goes home. He goes to his hometown. And remember, we, we're, we're, he's two years into his ministry. What happens everywhere he goes? Who shows up? Big crowds, right? But he's from this little hamlet, this little tiny place called Nazareth. There aren't enough people to have a big crowd. Um, it's roughly guesstimated that in, in the first century when Jesus made this visit and when he grew up in Nazareth, there were less than 300 people that lived in the whole place. So we see in this gospel, in this beginning, um, Jesus' trip home. So I want to invite you to join me there in Mark chapter 6. We're just going to read verses 1 through 6. And here's what the Word of God says. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in a synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Now look at verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, 
the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? Now look at these next words. So they were, what's the Bible say? Offended. It offended them. The authority with which he taught was offensive to them. And so they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he could do, look at this, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. He left. What a, what a, what a frightful thought. Jesus couldn't do much in his own hometown because of their unbelief. We should want a mighty work of God to be done in us, shouldn't we? I, I see families with young children. I still have one young child in my house. I want God to do a mighty work in my kids. I really do. That's, that's why we invest in the kingdom. That's why we bring them. That's why we make them sit in the, under the preaching of God's word as soon as they have a little bit of understanding. Because here's what we believe. We believe that God shows up when his word is proclaimed. And that even little kids like Lexi back there, they're going to get something out of that because God shows up when his word is proclaimed. Do we believe that today? Wow, we should want that. And I know that we do, not just in ourselves, but in our family, in our community, and in our country. I don't know about you, but I want my children to chase King Jesus. I want my sons and my daughters to walk daily in the dust of our rabbi and king. I want to see our single men in the church pursue Christ as much as they're pursuing single women. Amen? I, I want to I see God move. I want to see people go after him. But this title that I've given this sermon today is the familiarity vaccine because it comes from the old statement that familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Contempt. And so I want to ask this question. Could it be, and I want you to really consider this. It's not for somebody else today. It's for you. Could it be possible that you and I are the contemporary version of Nazareth? Mm -hmm. We've gotten just enough of the king and his kingdom gospel to be vaccinated against him. A lot of people in Macon, Georgia today, and maybe some in this room, that have gotten just enough Jesus that they're inoculated to his power and his presence and his transformation uh, ability in their lives, which means they know enough about Jesus to keep him at arm's length. Those people don't end up in Jesus' kingdom. They stay in the kingdom of darkness. That's a frightful thought. If we had just enough of Jesus to be vaccinated against him. So, so these, these accounts challenge us, and that's the point today. I could have just as easily entitled this message, How to Cultivate Faith in Jesus, right? Because the problem in, in his hometown was unbelief, and there was a reason for that. 
No, there was an excuse for that. It was not a valid reason. Amen. So let's look at that today. Let's consider the cultivation of trust or faith in Jesus as an important way to tap into his life-changing resurrection power. That makes sense today? You get where we're going? So let me jump into that first point there. Number one is that we need to walk in his dust. Now those of you that have been around for this Mark series know what that term means. Um, to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus in the first century, to be a disciple of a rabbi, they would be, these young men would be invited to walk in the dust of their rabbi. What's that mean? It means they're going to do life with Jesus. Where the rabbi goes, the disciple is right behind. Does that make sense? They follow, the, 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 the disciple follows the teacher. Um, the, well, I, know, I guess I, did I just not put that um, sermon in there? Is it not in there at all? Lost everything, Okay. That's fine. There was a picture up there of, of, of the city of Nazareth in a map. So if you got, so you can picture the Sea, the sea of Galilee. And then um, at the top of the, of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum, which was Jesus' home base for his ministry. Now you've got to go about 25 miles to the west, southwest. And it was not an easy 25 miles because as you're going that 25 miles, it's all uphill. And you're climbing to the top of a, of a mountain. Um, and right there on the edge of some very steep cliffs is this little hamlet of Nazareth, about 25 miles away. And we see there in verse 1, then he went out from there, that's Capernaum area, to his own country and his disciples followed him. So it's about 25 mountainous miles away from Capernaum. And it's on a trade route that's called the Way of the Sea. And this route climbs from the coast of the Mediterranean up the hills near Nazareth and then back down to get the Mediterranean Sea. You've got to go uphill to get to Nazareth. And then it's a downhill and around 25 miles to get to Galilee and Capernaum. So along this path, the Way of the Sea, is this little out-of-the-way town, out town that's been been hacked into the region's rocky hillsides, a very rocky, barren place. Through archaeology and historical records, it appears only a few hundred people lived there during the time of Christ. It's never referenced in the Old Testament and is barely mentioned in history. Nazareth was a forgotten place. It was nowheresville. It's no wonder that Nathaniel, when he was invited to, to meet Jesus, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Really? Nazareth? Of all places? Um, no, nobody saw anything good coming out of there. So Jesus gets this idea with his fellows. He's surrounded by thousands of people. He says, guys, I got a great idea. Let's take a ministry trip to my hometown. What could go wrong? <laughs> right? You ever done that? And, and this is how, so he brought his disciples with him. That's how these traveling rabbis rolled. They would, where they went, the disciples were right behind them, walking in their dust. This intimacy, this doing life together. So they head that way. And Jesus is on the clock. So he's teaching. He's training his men during this visit to his hometown. And in this episode, and in the episode after this one, we're going to look at next week, Jesus sends his disciples out later, two by two, to preach the same gospel he's been preaching, repent, believe, and follow the king, right? It's the kingdom gospel. And you're gonna, they're going to they're gonna cast demons out of people and heal people. 
And he's going to warn them that not everybody's going to welcome them with open arms. Because they've just been rejected. Jesus himself has been rejected in his own hometown. So Nazareth's rejection becomes a teachable moment for Jesus' disciples. All this shows us that he came to, to Nazareth to work, to minister. He came there to do something, but he was hindered. But what was that work that Jesus came to Nazareth to perform? What invitation was he given to the area? Yeah, welcome me. The kingdom gospel. Repent of your sin. Believe that I am the Messiah and follow me. He wasn't just a miracle worker walking around that region healing people. Don't ever forget that. And here's the problem. Those miracles are so incredible. They're so amazing that we focus on the miracle and we lose the message. Don't ever forget the miracles came only ever after the message. The message was the point and the miracles validated the message. So Jesus wasn't just some walking, talking miracle guy. No, he was a walking, talking kingdom message guy and he performed miracles to validate the message. And we see that through the, through the history of the church in the first century in Acts. And even before Acts is over, you know what you see? You see more and more converts, don't miss this, and less and less miracles. More and more converts, less and less miracles. You know why? The miracles had a purpose. It was to prove early on that this message is true. And now that more and more people are believing the message, listen, what's the true miracle of the gospel? It's not that the lame walk, it's that sinners who are dead in their sins are now alive in Christ. That's the miracle. The changed lives of the converts became the miracle of conversion. And those physical miracles became less and less. Remember, Jesus came to introduce the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom gospel. Don't forget Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus offers a kingdom first and any healing or powerful move comes as a result of being a kingdom citizen. We've got to see that. Always keep that in the forefront of your mind as you read the scripture. And yet, what do the people do in his hometown? They reject him. Isn't that crazy? The rejection of King Jesus unplugs the powerful work that he desires to do in us. You say, well, I haven't rejected Jesus. Haven't we? Every time we sin, we reject him. Did you all realize that? It's a rejection of Christ and an acceptance of sin. That's why you can't have both of those in one life. And as the king, he will suffer no rivals to his throne. Here's a message for us today. If you're on the throne of your life, get off. That's not your throne to sit on. That throne is meant for one, King Jesus. Amen? And that's part of what our communion is about today. And there's no power without this king. Oh, but with, there's king, with this king, there's plenty of power. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly 
above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. There's plenty of power. Here's number two, is you've got to know his identity, number two. That's in verses two and three. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is it which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? So they were offended at him. Let's look at their questions. So we got to know who he is. Remember, what, remember Mark's very first verse, Mark 1.1? 1, 1? He said, this is, this is, I, I'm here to tell you the good news about the identity of Jesus, that he is the Son of God. So Mark lets the cat out of the bag. But here's what you got to realize. The, the, the characters in his story, in his gospel, they didn't know that yet. They were learning that as they went along, right? So Jesus goes home in order to share with his neighbors and family his identity, who he really is. He is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He is revealing who he is. But they have some questions. So as he gets, he gets to uh, Nazareth, we don't know what day he got there. We know it wasn't Saturday because Jesus wouldn't have been walking that far on a Saturday. He would have been obeying the law and so he was already there. Jesus doesn't start teaching until the Sabbath. That's interesting. Everywhere else he goes, like Tom said, he is inundated with throngs of thousands of people. In Nazareth, it's like he walks in and nobody pays attention to him. Now, had they heard about Jesus and what he had been doing in other places? Sure. Most definitely. They had heard the rumors, but nobody was interested enough to gather around him to hear him teach until the Sabbath day. And he, he, he goes to the synagogue there and he teaches. And when he teaches, don't miss this. They have already had, listen, this is so good. They've got a preconceived idea who Jesus is. And by the way, I think you and I have that too sometimes. They got a preconceived idea who Jesus is. And because of that, they got some questions about how he's teaching. Because his teaching was stunning in, in, in a word. So their first question is, where did he get these teachings? Did you notice that? What does that imply when they ask, where did he get these teachings? Aha. Uh -huh. He didn't come up with this. Why did they not think Jesus could teach like that? That he had to get it from somewhere else. Because we know this guy, right? He, and by the way, that tells us a lot about what Jesus was like as a child. He didn't look any different or act any different than anybody else other than he did not sin. But you've got to remember, they, Jesus lived in a very righteous time as far as the law goes. Uh, ch children were very careful. Um, they, they, the, the, the parents believed in that fifth commandment to honor father and mother. And, 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 and children obeyed. Jesus didn't look any different than anybody else around him. So they say, whoo, this teaching was amazing. Where did he get it from? It couldn't have come from him. Knowing what we know about Jesus versus what we just heard him say, somebody must have taught, he must have got this teaching somewhere outside of himself. Why? They got Jesus wrong. And because they got Jesus' identity wrong, they couldn't accept his teaching and authority. Does that make sense? Do you see what's happening here? Look at the next question. What was given to him? Somebody put something in this guy. He got this from somewhere because he couldn't have come up with it himself. 
And then look at the next question. How is he doing these mighty works? Notice they're not denying his miracles that back up his message. They're even saying, wow, his message is amazing. He must have got it from somewhere. Who put that message in him? And how is he doing the things that he's doing? Why are those things a question? Because they thought they knew him. <laughs> right? They thought they knew him. Can't be him. It can't be. Either one or two things is happening. He got this from somewhere else or, he's, or he is someone else than we thought. And notice they never got to that last question. What they should have been asking is this. Who is this man? They should have been asking the same question the disciples asked on the Sea of Galilee when it went from a hurricane to a dead calm. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this guy? They never asked who he was. They asked where to get his information from. How is it that he changed so much? It must have been an outside source. They got Jesus wrong. Because they thought they knew him. I'm going to put a pin in that for a second. That's you and I today. You're getting Jesus wrong because you think you know him and the Jesus you think you know is not the Jesus who is. What if that's true today? What if we are vaccinated by familiarity? We heard the stories growing up in Sunday school. We sat through the sermons. And I got just enough Jesus to take care of what I think is my problem, but not enough that he'll mess up my life and have, and have me making hard decisions. Who did they think he was? Well, we don't have to wonder. We see it in verse 3. Here's who they thought he was. Is this not, this is their identity. Is this not the what? Carpenter. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the, the guy who followed in his father's footsteps? Notice this next one. The carpenter, not just any carpenter, who? The son. Now, you, you should know, maybe you know enough in here today to realize that in the first century, when Jesus was living, you weren't known as the son of your mother. Who were you known as? The son of your father. Y'all know what they're doing here, don't you? You gotta go back to Luke and Mark, uh, Matthew, with his beginnings. We know that Mary was with child before Joseph and Mary were married. You know what they were actually saying? They were throwing shade at Jesus. You know what they're really saying? It, it cleans up in the translation, but you know what they're really saying? Isn't this the bastard son of Mary? That's what they're saying. Isn't this the illegitimate son of Mary? And because we know that's who Jesus is, he can't be who he seems to be. Does that make sense today? Crazy stuff here. If you don't believe me, just jot this down in your outline this morning. John chapter 8, verse 19. These are the same leaders in Nazareth. They get around him and they ask, who is your father? Right? What are they saying? We, we know Joseph's not your dad. Same question. We know him and his whole family, his brothers and sisters. And by the way, notice that. He names four of his brothers, and it says sisters plural, not just one, but what? At least more, at least two, right? Sisters plural. So there's four, five, six, and with Jesus, seven kids in that house. And that's a problem. There's some forms of 
and some churches today that teach that Mary was a virgin and remained a virgin her whole life. Well, that would stink for Joseph, but that's what they teach. But the reality was they abstained from physical union while Mary was pregnant with Jesus, but afterwards they had at least six more kids. Jesus had brothers, and two of those brothers wrote epistles. The letter of James and the one we're studying in our, in our discipleship groups, the letter of Jude. Those guys were Jesus' brothers. We know him. We know his mom. We know his family. We know his brothers and sisters. We know who Jesus is. And they were familiar enough to not believe him. The old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Here's the reality of that, though. Lack of familiarity breeds contempt. They thought they knew him, but they weren't, they weren't familiar enough with him. That was the problem, wasn't it? And that's our problem today. Some of you think you know him, but the reality is you don't know him enough yet. And that's our problem. Because that leads to unbelief. They were inoculated against the revelation of his true identity. And that was possibly due to envy. Now, rather rejoicing in the fact that one of the hometown boys was actually the Messiah, they were envious of him, and they reject him. They were offended by Jesus. Verse 3, it's interesting, he says, he stumbled them. When it says he, they were offended by him, literally the word there is he stumbled them. What he said versus who they thought he was caused them to trip over him. And the reason they tripped over him is, is not because they knew him. It's because they didn't know him enough. And it's the same reason you and I are offended by Jesus today. It's not because you know him. It's because you don't know him enough. If you don't know him enough to say no to sin, the problem is not you know him well enough. It's that you don't know him well enough. When those hard decisions come and those temptations come, it's not that you don't know him. It's that you do know him, but not enough. That was their problem. They got tripped up by the fact that he was a Nazarene. He was one of them. But they should have realized that he wasn't only one of them, that he was a son of God, Mark 1.1. All right, number three is this. You need to honor your king. That's in verse four. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except within his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Isn't that the truth? Now, by the way, that quote there does not come from the Old Testament. That was a local uh, proverb, if you will. It was an adage or an axiom that was very common amongst Jewish people in the first century. Uh, so, so Jesus is using one of their own sayings, and he says, Isn't it true that a prophet is not without honor except at home? <laughs> in his own country, among his own people, in his own household. It was their way of pointing out how hard it was to excel in the eyes of people who watched you grow up. I got a friend of mine just down the road. He pastors the church he grew up in. He came into that church as a newborn baby. There are literally ladies in his church right now that remind him every Sunday, I changed your diaper in a nursery pastor. That's a hard gig, isn't it? I mean, that's the last thing you want to hear. <laughs> um, someone once said an expert is a regular person from another town. Isn't that true? <laughs> and that was Jesus' problem here. The Nazarenes despised the greatest Nazarene to ever live because they thought they knew him. 
Reality was they didn't know him enough and they didn't honor him. And by the way, beloved, that's a cautionary tale for you and I today. Are we inoculated to who Jesus really is and his place and stance and authority in our lives? And maybe, they ser- maybe these people serve as a warning that we shouldn't get too comfortable with Jesus. We should constantly evaluate who we think his, what we think his true identity is. Because here's a reality. This scares me when I see this garbage on social media. Jesus is not your homeboy. He's not your BFF or our vending machine dispensing things you desire. He's not just a shoulder to cry on or a source of understanding. He's not the dream maker, problem fixer, or way maker. He's not the servant of your best life now. He's not the one worthy of only sporadic worship. No, he is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the earth. He was was slaughtered in your place and in mine. That's who this King Jesus is. That's the king we come to remember this morning. He is the conquering lion who will submit everything and everyone to his power one day. He is the sustainer of the universe. He is the very word who brought matter into existence. He is the image of the invisible God. And this king, listen to me, deserves your honor. And may I say, he demands your honor today. That's who we serve. And then number four, this is so, what do I do with that? You need to reevaluate what you think you know about Jesus, number one, right? That's it. Jesus is more, Jesus is better than you think you are, and you're worse than you think you are. Boy, that, I get hit with that every time I read the Bible. I don't know about you. I'm worse than I think I am, and he's way better than I thought he was. But number four, you need to activate your faith in King Jesus. And unfortunately, we see the opposite of that. In these last two verses, he, the Bible says in verse 5, could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now notice this in verse 6, and he marveled. What's that mean? He was amazed in a negative way. He marveled because of their unbelief. So he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. He left. He left. And he would right after that tell his disciples, I'm sending you out. And anybody that treats you like Nazareth treated me, shake the dust off your feet. And it'll be between them and God and it's not going to work out good for them. Do you see the history here, what's going on? The unbelief of the Nazarenes appears to have stopped Jesus dead in his tracks. This is the scariest word in the whole text. He could do no mighty work there. He was hindered. Now, a few people were healed, and apparently they had the faith to do so. But Jesus marvels at their unbelief. You know, there's only two times in all of the gospel records that Jesus is said to have marveled. One was here at a lack of faith. And oddly enough, the other comes a little bit later uh, in Luke 9, 7, at the amount of faith and who it was from. That's when a Roman centurion asked Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus said, well, yeah, I'll go with you. And the guy said, no, you don't need to come to my house. I'm a man under authority. I say to this soldier, come here, and he comes. I say that one, go, and he goes. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed right now. And the Bible says this. I want, I want to read it to you. I don't even want to paraphrase this. Luke 9, 7, 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them. And turning to the crowd... That followed him, he said, I tell you, nowhere in Israel 
have I found such a faith like his. Boy, was that a slap in the face. Because you know who those Jews that followed him hated more than anybody? Romans. And you know what the centurion represented? The power of Rome. Those Jews hated that guy. And Jesus said, you know what? If you want to get along in the kingdom, be more like him and less like you. And the Bible says that Jesus marveled at this centurion's what? Faith. And here he marvels at their unfaith or their disbelief, their lack of belief. There's only two things that cause Jesus to marvel. A lack of faith or a lot of faith. Here's my question. What do you have today? You got a lack of faith or you got a lot of faith? When's the last time Jesus marveled at your faith? Or when was the last time he marveled at your unbelief? Hmm. I know, you ought to say amen or ouch. But the unbelief in Nazareth, it amazed Jesus. The scripture does not say that he was shocked, not shocked by depravity, brokenness, or sin, but what he marveled at was unbelief. Jot this down in your outline, Hebrews 3.12. Listen to these words. Written to Christians, written to followers. This blows me, this scares me. Here's what it says. Take care, brothers, lest in any, brothers, don't miss that, lest in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart exists. Ooh. You say, well, you know what, preacher? that can't be me because when I was five, I said this prayer, I got baptized, it's all good. The writer of Hebrews says, be careful, beware, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, an unbelieving heart. So what do we do with that? These Nazarenes decided not to believe in Jesus. They thought they'd watch his perfect life from childhood into manhood, and even though they did that, they were unmoved. To one of Mark's themes, they were on the outside, while only a handful of sick people were on the inside in his hometown. Isn't that crazy? They all rejected him. His hometown rejected him. We know his family rejected him. How do you know that? Mark 3. Remember, they came to get him because they thought he was insane. They thought he was mentally ill. His own mom and brothers showed up to take him by force and drag him back to Nazareth to get him some mental help. And now he comes home and they still don't get it. There might be a parenthesis in there for Mary. But we know James and Jude didn't until after the resurrection. Then they were willing to die for him. Let's be those who get to be a part of his amazing work on earth. Let's be those on the inside. You got a lack of faith or a lot of faith. All of us can receive what we need. No one has to be on the outside. We need to go inside his plans and his kingdom by faith. So that's my question to you today as we get ready to take up these elements. Do you got a little faith or you got a lot? And we need to repent of unbelief. I mean, I don't know a better way to say that. And what does unbelief look like? It's, we got to get Jesus right. And when you come up to hard situations in your life where you got to make a choice, I could just fudge on this for a little bit and God will be okay with it until I can fix it. No, we say, you know what? That doesn't look right. That's not what God wants me to do. So here's what, I'm going to not do that thing and I'm going to trust God for how this is going to work out.
Is that what we do? Your relationship to sin is a corresponding mirror to your understanding of who Jesus is. Is that fair? So who are you believing in today? Who's sitting on the throne of your life? If it's you, it's time to get off of it and invite Jesus back to his rightful place and live right, do right, be right, because he's the king. Let us not take the familiarity vaccine today, but let's be fully infected with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? Amen.